0: The country is on its way back to reopening after the coronavirus pandemic. And Las Vegas, of all places, has a date to reopen. On June 4th, selected casinos will be open for business. Temperatures will be checked and employees will have to wear face masks. Bars and restaurants will be open, but buffets will continue to be closed. Valet parking is also something that will not be available at this time. On the gambling floor, though... There's going to be increased cleaning and less people per table, four people at a roulette table, six people at a craps table. For more on the plans to open Vegas back up, we'll speak to Bailey Schultz. She's a reporter at the Las Vegas Review-Journal.
1: So, of course, not every property is going to be reopening. We're seeing a lot of companies planning for this approach. So few people traveling right now, it just doesn't make sense to open every property on the Strip. And so, for example, with MGM Resorts, we're seeing them open the Bellagio and New York and the MGM Grands Caesars. We're seeing the Caesars Palace and Flamingo, just sort of those slow reopenings as demand slowly starts to pick up. But Across the board, we're seeing properties come back online and pretty much across the Las Vegas Valley where we have the strip properties opening, we have downtown properties opening. Here, they're able to open their doors at 12.01 a.m., so pretty much right after the clock strikes midnight. But we're seeing a range of when these properties will be opening exactly. Some are opening right at 12.01 when they can. Others are waiting until 8 a.m. or 10 a.m. So there's a pretty good range.
0: Yeah, the Cosmopolitan is opening, some Wynn resorts are opening, the Wynn and Encore. It's not every casino, like you mentioned, but there's enough and they're spread out enough. I mean, enough to generate a pretty good time, I would think, in Vegas. But yeah, you're right. I'd be curious to see who's waiting in line at 1201 to get in there and, (laughs) and start going. That'll be something to look forward to on June 4th there. But let's talk about some of the important stuff. Obviously, safety and health is key in all of this. Every business that's opening is talking about requiring face masks, a lot of extra cleaning, hand sanitizer, but Las Vegas and these casinos are so unique. What are they planning? How are they planning to keep people safe and clean? Our state gaming
1: control board is actually enforcing all these different companies and licensed operators to submit these plans to them that just say, Hey, here's what we're doing to keep our employees and guests safe. And while it's not required for them to, to make these documents public, a lot of them are, I think just so that these guests and visitors can take a look at these websites and these guidelines that they post online and say, okay, here's what these companies are going to keep me safe. Here's what I can expect. So there's a little bit of variety between each company, but A lot of similarities across the board, Staffs being required to wear masks. We're seeing a lot say they're going to put in thermal cameras so they can screen temperatures as people are walking the door. And of course, with it being hot in the desert, if your external temperature is hot, they'll double check it and make sure you actually have a fever before they won't let you in. Other things we're seeing is hand sanitizers spread across the properties, just a lot of steps to keep people safe, and remind people that their safety is a priority for these
0: companies. On the face masks front, I'm seeing that obviously a lot of the resorts are going to have their employees be wearing them, and some of the bigger resorts are going to give guests free masks, but they're not going to necessarily be forced to use them. Does that seem like that's kind of across the board where masks are recommended, but they're not going to enforce anything like that?
1: That's what I've seen, where nothing was being strictly enforced by these companies. There are some lines in these new health and safety plans that say, hey, if we can't enforce six feet of social distancing and we don't have barriers, we may require you to wear a mask in certain instances. But other than that, I have not seen anything saying we will require each guest to wear a mask as they walk in the property.
0: The gaming floors are going to be pretty different, too. At roulette tables, they're only going to allow four players, six players at Mm -hmm. a craps table. And I think even there's going to be plastic partitions to separate dealers from the players and other players. So that's going to be pretty different. The slot machines are always very close to each other. What's the plan on that? Are they closing maybe the slot machine in the middle and just letting people use the ones on the outside? How is that going to work out?
1: Again, all about that social distancing. A lot of them are saying they're going to turn off or remove every other slot machine to make sure people have that space between them and the other players. Some are saying they're going to have that sort of plexiglass dividers between certain machines. And so we're seeing a big variety there. But I think with these companies, a lot of what they're thinking about right now is just making sure there's that distance between guests as they play in the casinos.
0: Two other big interesting things that I noted, everybody's touting free self-parking, but it seems like valet is out the window. And the other one is a lot of restaurants and bars are opening, but it seems like a lot of the buffets are not going to be open.
1: Self-parking is a very hotly debated topic here in Las Vegas where locals are very against it and have been against it since it first started being implemented here. But right now, it makes sense to remove, I think, at the beginning, especially these companies are going to be very reliant on local business and drive-in customers from places like California. And it makes sense to draw these people in by offering that free parking. And so not entirely a big surprise that they are changing that in light of current circumstances. As far as the phase, it seems like those will be gone until further notice, just for safety reasons, once again, to make yeah. sure that there's heightened cleanliness measures and, and making sure people have safe food and free food when they get
0: it. Right. A lot of hands on things on a buffet line and potential to spread a lot of stuff. So it's very tough there. Well, I love Vegas. I can't wait to really get back there and enjoy it. But it is going to be different for quite some time. And I know right in the first few days, they're going to really be adjusting. So some of these rules will even change as they start learning from how things are operating. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting next week to see how it all rolls out. Bailey Schultz, reporter for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And continuing on this theme of the economy slowly starting to come back, hopefully the worst of the shutdowns are over. For the first time since the forced shutdowns began in March, spending on hotels, restaurants, and airlines are starting to pick back up. While there's still some uncertainty going forward with high unemployment and consumer spending, we're hoping that we've hit this peak economic loss. For more on this, we'll speak to Harriet Torrey, economics reporter for The Wall Street Journal.
2: The official data that we get from the US government, we get it with a lag of sort of four to six weeks. So we don't have anything really much yet to say that we've seen that's official from April and May. However, we get a lot of real-time indicators from sort of private companies and things like that. And that is suggesting that things probably bottomed out in the middle of April. And on the consumer side, early May, we had Mother's Day, which is a big spending event. And then of course, just this past weekend was more day. And we really see some suggestions that things are beginning to pick up after bottoming out. So for instance, we can see diners at restaurants and there's been a slight uptick in that. The number of people traveling through TSA airport checkpoints also picking up, but it is worth bearing in mind that these numbers are still kind of 80 to 90% below what they were this time a year ago.
0: But the point is that they're not declining anymore. They're at least remaining stable. Or we're getting back to it again. One of the interesting ones that you mentioned in your piece, too, is that people are applying to open new businesses. That was one that I would not have expected to see so quickly. You know, economists say
2: that often economic downturns produce innovation, unproductive firms die off, and and new ideas come to fruition, which it is amazing that we're seeing that already. So just more broadly, it does seem like some of the bloodletting has stopped and that things are picking up. But of course, it is early days. And what economists say when looking at this data is that any sign of a pickup is contingent on there not being a second wave of outbreaks, because right. if there are fresh outbreaks and we have to go into lockdown again, that would be potentially really bad for the economy.
0: One of the industries that you focused on in your piece was the shipping industry as a point that it illustrating this kind of come back the best, at least. Explain that a little bit.
2: This is just a sign that things are starting to get moving again. So... We have some indicators on the trucking spot market, and these have been picking up for four straight weeks. People are just moving more stuff around. Freight is getting underway again. Again, we had some companies that said that things were very slow at the start of April, but demand um, has remained fairly steady since then, which is another sign that hopefully the worst is behind us.
0: One of the other interesting points was the real estate industry. A lot of the conversations were saying, why aren't home prices going down? Although insurance rates were probably going really low, all-time lows and all that and attracting a lot of first time buyers, the housing prices weren't necessarily dropping down, but we're starting to see some good activity there as well.
2: Yeah, we're just beginning to see suggestions that people are feeling more comfortable going out and looking for a new home. And part of this could be pent up demand. You know, we had a, a, essentially from the middle of March, everything was in lockdown. And traditionally the spring is usually the hot time for the housing market. That didn't happen this year. That there are signs of pent up demand and people beginning to do more searches, beginning to look for a new place to live. And it was interesting because some of the people I spoke to for the story said that there are potentially two reasons for that. One is that mortgage rates are very, very low. So borrowing costs are low. You can get a good deal on a mortgage. But the other thing is we've been spending so much time at home during this coronavirus lockdown that people are really beginning to see their home as a potential space not just for living and sleeping but for working every day and so people are looking for a nice place to call home they feel like they need perhaps a home office or maybe a home gym or a yard because the coronavirus pandemic and the fact that everyone's had to be at home has made everyone kind of think more about what they want
0: from a home so we are getting some good indicators some good real-time data we have to wait for some official numbers for a little bit longer but there is still a lot of uncertainty i know that the recovery still will be kind of slow. It's not going to bounce back as a lot of people would hope. And consumer spending is a big part of that. Talk to me about that and also about unemployment, because that seems like it will linger a long time and people need to get back to work before they can really start spending again.
2: Yes. And these two things kind of go hand in hand because consumer spending really drives the U.S. economy. And in order for consumers to feel comfortable spending, one of the things that they need is income, so having a job. I mean, people are getting expanded unemployment benefits, but that doesn't compensate for getting a regular paycheck. And the hit to the labor market has been absolutely enormous. It's without modern precedent. We've had nearly 40 million people imply first-time unemployment benefits in the past couple of months. So, The reason why economists are talking about potentially a slow recovery is because they are worried that some of the jobs that were lost as a result of the coronavirus pandemic shutdowns won't be recovered, that they will be lost permanently because many businesses are going to struggle to reopen, restaurants and et cetera, retailers. So it's kind of like the two things are going to have to go hand in hand. So the things that will have to happen first and foremost, economists say, is For the economy to recover, we need to get over the pandemic that, you know, the healthcare situation is really important. So we either need a vaccine or the number of new infections needs to go down enough that people feel safe venturing out of their houses and, for instance, going back to malls and restaurants and going out and spending again. That, in turn, once people start to feel comfortable venturing out, that should hopefully prompt hiring you know for instance instead of just a business owner doing everything him or herself behind the counter perhaps that person will need to staff up hire a few more staff to meet demand at their store or their restaurant as business starts to come back but this could be a slow process so that's kind of the concern for economists that we fell into a hole very quickly and it could take longer to climb back out of this hole
0: I know everybody is ready for the comeback. Hopefully we can get the health side of it situated quickly and we can get back to as normal as possible as it was before. Harriet Tory, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Another big story this week, President Trump has signed an executive order that could open the door for federal regulators to punish Facebook, Google and Twitter for the way they moderate content online. This order comes after Twitter decided to fact-check some posts by the president about mail-in voting. The order could pave the way for a revision of a long-standing legal protection known as Section 230. For more on this fight against big social media companies, we'll speak to Kat Zekreski, author of the Technology 202 newsletter at The Washington Post.
3: So the president for years has been threatening to crack down on the tech industry and pursue regulation. And today he took the most significant step toward that with this executive order what the executive order does is take aim at the tech industry's legal shield which is known as section 230 and this decades old law basically protects tech companies from lawsuits for the content moderation decisions they make and also for any content that people post on their services so this executive order today according to the drafts that we saw circulating earlier would essentially direct federal regulators to take a closer look at the scope of that law. And this is a law that many tech companies view as completely fundamental to the way that they operate. And so any changes to that are very concerning to the tech industry. Basically, a lot of the tech companies believe that this legal shield protected them from onerous lawsuits and allowed the tech industry to grow to what it is today. And they've raised concerns that any changes to this law or how it's enforced could have very negative impacts on free expression online.
0: How does this fit into what happened on Twitter, where the president was tweeting stuff out about mail-in voting, said there's going to be a lot of fraud related to it, and Twitter put a fact check out there. They pointed to some other articles that basically says, you know, there's really no evidence of that how would uh, this executive order figure into something like that? Because the president and a lot of people on the right have for a long time accused a lot of these social media platforms of bias against conservative voices.
3: You know, the Trump administration and some other Republicans have argued that if the tech companies are going to be making decisions about how their remarks appear on their services, like the decision that Twitter made earlier this week to label two of the president's tweets that they shouldn't have this broad immunity from liability. The president and Republicans argue that that makes them more like news organizations like the Washington Post or others, and they argue that if they're going to be making editorial decisions that they should therefore be liable and be able to be sued for the content decisions they make and the content that they host. So really, you know, this is the president following through on long-standing threats to regulate the industry. This, as I mentioned, is one of the tech industry's most important shield. And by taking aim at that, he's really kicking up this tensions that we've seen between Silicon Valley and the White House to a new level. And right now, it remains to be seen how effective this will actually be in terms of changing how the law is implemented. This executive order in the form that we saw earlier today would direct federal regulators, specifically it would direct the Commerce Department to petition the FCC to open a review of this law. So it really, at this point, is up to the agencies on how they're going to enforce it. And also, I mean, this order opens a lot of thorny First Amendment questions. And I think we'll see some challenges moving forward from the tech companies over whether or not what the president is doing is constitutional.
0: There's going to be a lot of pressure on all sides, supporters of the president, obviously the president himself. And then on the other side, calls for the social media platforms to continue doing some of this fact checking stuff. One of the questions I had, because The president has been saying a lot of stuff on his Twitter during his tenure as president. Most recently, he's also been talking about some conspiracy thing with Joe Scarborough, accusing him, saying uh, possible murder, things like that. But when Twitter decided to fact check his Twitter feed, this time about the mail-in voting, I think uh, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, said, whenever something is being said incorrect about our elections, we're going to try to fact check that. Was that specifically why they did it to that, just because it kind of concerned the election?
3: each social network has really specific terms of service and community standards. And based on those policies, they often make decisions about whether or not to label or remove something. In Twitter's policies, particularly any information that could potentially suppress voting, any health disinformation related to the coronavirus, they view those topics as more sensitive than other general false claims on their services. So, It kind of goes to show how these policies get into really granular specifications about when it's okay and not okay to spread falsehoods on these platforms. But Twitter has really had a lot of internal struggles over what to do about those posts that you mentioned related to Joe Scarborough. And I think we'll have to closely watch what the company said. They said that those posts didn't violate their current policies, but said that they would be reevaluating those policies moving forward. And so, this battle with the president and the pressure that they're facing to do more to police some of those more baseless and outrageous statements could really lead to more changes within the company down the line.
0: Kat Zakreski, author of the Technology 202 newsletter for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.